This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Book Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joshua Toplitsky, Jordan Katz, and Jonathan Sarna about their new book, Be Fruitful, the Etrog in Jewish Art, Culture, and History, published by Meneged Publishing House in 2022. This book is a lovely collection, both intellectually and visually, covering everything from the sale of the Etrog throughout history, the visual representations, medical remedies, and much more. Joshua, Jordan, and Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Joshua, you're, you're one of the editors, one of three editors, one of the triumvirate of, of editors for this really great project. So looking at the book itself, there's the textual and the visual aspects. And so with the visual aspects, we'd, we'd love to dive in and, and, and dig into that a little bit. Um, so the book itself is, is a beautiful book. Um, you know, even just looking at the cover, uh, you know, we're only on podcast forms. People can't see what I'm holding up, but... We've got just a really beautiful image, and then the, the book itself is filled with really, really nice images. So starting from the cover, w- what is the picture we're looking at on the front, and wh- why was that chosen as the, the cover image? Uh, thanks for the question and, and for that beautiful compliment. Um, the fact that this work came together in such a lavish, beautiful format is really a testament to uh, the labors of so many people. Um, at so many different levels. And so even before we talk about this image, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the amazing work that went into this. And I am in the fortunate position of being able to acknowledge the work because I had nothing to do with any of the images. So I can I can just boast about other people's excellent work. Um, the entire project came together as a kind of meeting of minds and of curiosity between the three editors that you see on the cover of this book. Myself, Sharon Lieberman Mintz, and Warren Klein. Um, I was very interested in the historical, somewhat academic stories that were part of, uh, that made up this book. And both Sharon Mintz and Warren Klein are are deeply visually oriented people. They work as curators, um, they've done museum work, library work, and they have a wonderful, vast, extended network of colleagues and contacts who have spent decades collecting, preserving, and curating artifacts and material culture from Jewish history and beyond. And so the the book's hidur, uh, which comes from the pre-Eitz Hadar, the, the book's beauty really does come from the labor of librarians and archivists and collectors, both private and public institutions, that responded to the call, uh, that, that lent their material to be photographed and showcased here, and that we were able to um, marry history with material culture, uh, portraiture, illuminated manuscripts, 
coins, the list goes on uh, to pull this together today. Um, what you may see on the cover of this book, and hopefully people who are listening out there will get a chance to hold this object in their hands. Uh, forgive me, I should mention just one more. Um, that is all amazing labor. And in addition to that, we're deeply, deeply fortunate to have the, the keen expert eye of a designer uh, by the name of Ada Vardi in Israel. Uh, and Ada was unfailing and unflagging in pushing us to make sure that these wonderful images were reproduced and represented in the most fitting of ways on what I hope you'll feel is weighty paper, is glossy paper, um, in, a, in a beautiful size with wide margins, all I think, I hope that it gives a sense of the elegance that this object deserves. And so really, this is a project that comes together at so many levels, from points of origin, through drawing on years of um, building repositories, to then representing it in the most elegant of forms. The image that you see on the cover in front of you is a, is a picture of the Citrus Medica, and it actually doesn't even come from a Jewish book. And we thought it was interesting and important to put a, a, an image of this nature on the cover, first of all, because it's, it's simply lovely. It's arresting for the eye. Uh, it's a large etrog that hovers above some kind of manner. But we also thought it was so interesting to be able to speak to the history of the etrog as something that crosses all kinds of different imagined or real boundary lines, whether we're talking about geographic lines, historical lines, lines of genre, or lines between Jews and their neighbors. And so we felt that it was a fitting image to represent the cover and all of the contents within as something that we hope will draw the reader in. And as you said, there really are so many different images from so many different sources, all sorts of types of images from these types of depictions, as, as well as images of, of cases for Etro games, so many things that one could see. I'm curious if there were any stories um, in, in regards to the acquisition of these images, any, anything, you know, any difficulties therein, or any, any cases where you had to, I don't know, go, go through like major hoops, but just to, to cases where you, 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 there was a labor of love for actually acquiring or getting these images. What I, what I think I'll say to that is... The, the process of including the images was such an interesting, somewhat dialectical one for us. Sometimes we, uh, we approach scholars um, like Jordan Katz that we're about to hear from soon, like Jonathan Sarn and Zev Elif. Um, it, it takes too long, I think, to read through this wonderful and amazing list of people who contributed their time and expertise um, to go through the entire table of contents. But sometimes we approached people directly because we knew they were working on or thinking about aspects of the Etrog. And sometimes a particular object or artifact or image demanded that we go looking for somebody whose expertise would fit an analysis and interpretation and a contextualization of those images. So it's been, for me, an especially illuminating experience to, to watch the way that, that objects and artifacts, whether it's the etrog or representations of the etrog or so many other examples, sometimes draw us in and, and invite us to collaborate or connect with people that we might not otherwise have done. So if we look at the, the text itself, um, and we just think about the book coming together. So we said there's three editors and there's a host of, of lovely, very interesting, very talented authors. How did this all come together? What was the, the, uh, the spark? How did you decide to put this together? And then how did it come to fruition? Thanks for asking that. I think, if memory serves correctly, I think the spark came from 
an accidental archival discovery. Uh, when I was in the process of, of working on uh, my first book, Prince of the Press, I was in the archives in Prague and wanted to get a sense of, of the context in which uh, the main figure of my book, a uh, book collector by the name of David Oppenheim, I wanted to understand the context in which he operated. And so I started looking through the catalog of the other archival holdings there. And my interest was piqued when I noticed something about the commerce of citrons, which in the language of the catalog and in the language of the early 18th century uh, record makers were called paradise apples. And so I, I called up what was really a relatively slim file and was delightfully surprised to learn that this was an aspect and element of early modern Jewish communal responsibility. Um, and I did what um, I think lots of scholars do. I started to chat with colleagues about it. And in a relatively short amount of time, each person that I chatted with shot right back with, ah, I've confronted a source with Etrogim too. And it didn't take long before a roster of excellent and exciting people all retorted that they had a little something and wouldn't it be neat if we put this book together. Um, a collaboration uh, between me and Sharon Mintz was first suggested by our colleague Elisheva Karlbach. Um, and when we, uh, when we came together and uh, formed a team with Warren Klein, we knew that we had um, a, a three uh, a braided strand that was just the right thing to, to bring this book into, uh, into being. So before we, we get into the content of the book, even just looking at the table of contents, as, we, as we've discussed, there's so many different types of topics, so many types of scholars, people coming from all different areas, looking at, at many different aspects related to the Etrog. How did you come to decide which scholars you're going to approach, which topics you're going to approach? And were there any topics that you wish you had included that you weren't able to for whatever reason? Wow, good question. Really good question and a tough question at that. Um, as, we, as we started to chat about with your previous question, in some ways there was just serendipitous discoveries. Um, when, when Jordan Katz learned that I was interested in Etrogim, she would send me photographs of files that she had encountered about Etrogim. Um, and, and conversations just kind of rolled from there it was so easy then to turn to Jordan and say, won't you please contribute something to this book? Um, so sometimes it really was just the generosity of spirit of different scholars. And we were fortunate that they were not only generous in sharing their initial interest with us, but actually in sharing their time and effort in, in bringing this book together. At other times, we really did feel like there were stories that just had to be told. We had to find somebody who would be able to talk to us about point X or Y. It was clear that we needed a section on medieval and Renaissance illuminated Hebrew manuscripts. And we couldn't think of a more qualified person than Evelyn Cohn to, to confront and explore with sensitivity those items. It was clear to us that we needed people to talk about etrog boxes. We were so fortunate that Shalom Sabar and Sharon Weiser Ferguson were both um, interested and invested in, in writing for us. We wanted to think about Actually, we, I remember getting an email from um, Jakob Deutsch and Maria Diemling, who said, in the context of a completely different conversation, oh, we hear that you're working on Etrogim. How funny, they appear in the texts that we both work on and collaborate on together, um, Christian Hebraist writings about early modern Jews. It was so easy 
to write back and say, won't you please consider writing something for this volume? So I really do think serendipity and also scholarly generosity are, are the ingredients here. And we feel very fortunate to have. Professor Jonathan Sarna, you wrote a really lovely essay about the etrog in the new world called The Etrog Trade in the New World, and you wrote it together with Professor Zev Elif. Before we get to the content of the essay, I'd love to just understand, how did you do it? How did you work in a collaborative fashion with Professor Elif? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I've worked with Professor Elif on a variety of projects. So once upon a time, he was my doctoral student, and one develops uh, relationships that way. He, actually, I think that Joshua approached Zev but Ze- originally, but Zev knew that I was interested in the subject and I had actually given a talk about the subject um, uh, back uh, in the early 1990s. So uh, we decided to collaborate um, and uh, as in any good collaboration, uh, it would be hard for me to reconstruct all the pieces that are his and all that are mine, but we did uh, emphasize uh, certain different things, and um, uh, we just, you know, through the miracle of technology, we were able to send the essay back and forth until uh, we were uh, both satisfied. That's great. Sounds good. And it worked out because it's really a, a lovely piece. So if, if we look at the Etro game in the new world, um, currently 2022, most of them are, are not coming from the U.S., coming from the new world. They're coming from overseas, from different places. How did that come to be? Well, and that's a wonderful question. Why the, mm, the great majority of uh, Etro game come from the land of Israel? Um, why don't they come from the Caribbean, which is closer, or from California, which once had lots of citron trees, and we would have very, very cheap etrogim, and um, uh, in some respects, that was one of the questions we wanted to answer. Um, and in the course of trying, I believe, for the first time to really understand how American Jews obtained etrogim and how the etrog market actually worked, and uh, how uh, the prices were up, they were down, and so on, uh, we reconstructed where the where American Jews were largely getting etrogim from, and it turned out that that gave kind of three different models, which has all sorts of implications uh, for broader themes in Jewish history. Will the American Jewish community be independent? Will there be a kind of new world Jewish economy, um, meaning that North America will get etrogim from the Caribbean and that religious needs are fulfilled within the new world itself? Or 
as some insisted, American Jews are part of a larger Jewish world and they should get their etrogim where other people do. Uh, in the 19th century, that would be Europe, um, uh, Corfu and, and such places. Uh, and um, uh, it turned out uh, that at different times, etrogim came from all three of those places, but for reasons that uh, we set forth, um, the um, uh, Holy Land option, the beginning of trade with Eretz Yisrael, um, really uh, pushes all the competition out not because the etrogim from the land of Israel were cheaper or more beautiful, but because they were from Eretz Yisrael and they had uh, a certain cachet in addition. And um, uh, this is interesting because one wouldn't imagine it, but the rise of candy bars actually meant that the market for citrons declined. People who wanted sweet things used to eat candied citron. And now, uh, uh, instead of that, they went to the market or the pharmacy and they bought five-cent uh, candy bars. And the folks in California uh, rip out their citron trees and, gr and, and replace them with rather more lucrative orange groves. So the California citron industry uh, greatly declines. Um, Corfu, and there are other essays talk about Corfu in the book, but Corfu at Rogim become untouchable for a period of time because there's a, a real boycott of Corfu for a blood libel that took place there and resulted um, in about a third of the Jews leaving. And there were questions as well about the Kashrut um, the, uh, of the uh, Corfu at Rogim. And, uh, you know, and, and the land of Israel was there to fill in the gap. It's important to note that it's only with the rise of steam that it was conceivable that um, Etrogim from the land of Israel could be used. Once you have regular um, uh, back and forth um, uh, steam travel to the land of Israel, uh, which is only after the Civil War, as Mark Twain famously is on the first uh, uh, such boat, and within 10 years, there are boats going back and forth. Once you have regular transportation, then uh, you had hopes, yeah, I can get uh, uh, etrogim time certain, in time for the holiday, and um, more and more of them uh, begin uh, to arrive. And of course, uh, the 19th century sees a huge decline in the Jewish communities of the Caribbean. And so for all of those reasons, 
um, uh, today, uh, most American Jews buy fairly expensive etrogim from the land of Israel, whereas, amazingly, there was a brief moment in the late 19th century where lots of etrogim were coming from California, and uh, according to the book, you know, you could get one for a quarter. Um, uh, so uh, the normal uh, laws of economics don't quite apply here, uh, but uh, it is a very interesting uh, story of how, uh, of the ups and downs. It also turned out um, that really the first halachic dispute uh, that involved a lot of rabbis trying to figure out whether Caribbean etrogim were permissible or impermissible. Um, uh, is con- I mean, the first halachic dispute concerns etrogim in North America, and you have a lot of rabbis who weigh in. Naturally, they disagree. That's what you'd expect. That's why it's called a dispute. But um, they... Um, uh, it gives a sense of the concern pre-Civil War with uh, getting um, uh, etrogim that are um, uh, ilti murkav, that are non-grafted, um, and uh, trying to figure out uh, whether New World etrogim uh, fit that bill or not, we we have an amazing letter that really describes, to my knowledge, never before published, uh, that describes um, uh, how the etrogim grew wild and um, uh, therefore uh, it was impossible that they would be grafted. There was no money. Uh, in in the citron business, uh, you'd make much more money in the Caribbean, uh, being in sugar or rice or something like that. Uh, so uh, you know, it's um, uh, fascinating uh, to see how uh, a little etrogue involves you in all sorts of economic questions. Um, and occasionally religious questions that um, uh, go far beyond, you know, a, a little fruit um, and shows how the etrog really becomes a, a vehicle for shedding light on extremely interesting questions uh, in Jewish life. And I think many will find many surprises in this book, I've now had a chance to spend a time in the book, and even things that we assume always were the case, like the question of uh, can an etrog be grafted or ungrafted, that turns out to be much later than most people imagined the concern over grafting. Um, and as I say, there are many um, other. Uh, surprises um, uh, in in the volume, and I think um, uh, for historians who imagine that there is no serious Jewish history in the New World, I hope that this will also be a uh, 
illuminating uh, um, uh, uh, article for them and and it allows, if I may say so, for a fruitful collaboration between scholars um, uh, who work on the New World and traditional uh, 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 European uh, Jewish historians and um, and and uh, you know there were a lot of other interesting people brought into this volume who are not usually between the covers of a single book. There's a lot of science and a fascinating article uh, on how the etrogue moves from China uh, originally uh, to um, uh, to the Middle East and and. Uh, you know, I think um, many will find the volume of enormous interest. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate your pun as well. Hopefully we'll come up with some other good puns as, as our research comes along. Just the last question for you, Professor Sarna. Just was there anything um, between when you had done your initial research for this topic and the research which you did for this published volume? Any interesting finds come out in between? So things that only made into this one didn't made in, make it into your first research? Uh, I mean, there is an interesting matter that actually Zev and I spent an enormous amount of time on, and that is a, a um, response by Rabbi Ettlinger. And in uh, the recent editions of Rabbi Ettlinger's responsum, it talk it places the responsum um, in Australia that he's being asked um, uh, can we use an etrog from Australia and and he has um, uh, this response that it's fine there but not in Europe because you have to uh, use an etrogue the way it grows and it would be upside down. I, I, you know, the science can be debated. But what was really problematic um, was that if you actually read the response, it's pretty clear that it's not Australia at all. The circumstances fit America. In fact, I subsequently learned that there are no citrons it's not native to Australia, uh, which I didn't uh, earlier know, and it's not grown there. Um, and eventually, we realized by tracking down first edition that it was originally about the Caribbean. Rabbi Etlinger's students were embarrassed. Thank you. I really appreciate all that insight. It's just a little taste, a little smell of, of what you had to offer. And there's a lot more, of course, people can see in the essay. We really appreciate your time and giving us all that insight. So there's another pun for anyone who's keeping track. So I, I don't want to keep Jordan waiting here. I know she's been waiting patiently to join the conversation. And so you already mentioned a bit that there was conversations between you, Joshua, and Jordan um, before the book was, uh, you know, went to press and before, and as it was in its, you know, um, inquit phase. So, Jordan, how did you come to this project? Yeah, so um, it's, it's funny. So I am trained in um, history of medicine and Jewish history, and I've been thinking a lot about how those things overlap. Um, and 
And I, and part of that more broadly in history of science is thinking about, you know, prized objects um, in the, in the early modern period, which is a period I focus on and how there's sort of this focus on perfection and on um, a trade in really kind of special objects. Um, Sometimes they're placed in you know, around early modern Europe in what's called a cabinet of curiosities. Um, So I was sort of attuned to this um, within the kind of broader early modern, not specifically Jewish culture. um, When I was doing my own research um, for my dissertation and uh, I was reading a lot of Jewish communal manuscripts and I started to encounter the sources that Josh was sort of talking about, um, you know, that mentioned this trade in etrogim um, going back and forth to um, from Italy to Western Europe or from the land of Israel um, to, to Northern Europe. And I started to just kind of keep files of these thinking, oh, you know, there, there must be some kind of history of science to be written about why this object is this particular, takes this particular um, position of importance. Um, in addition to the, its ritual significance, there's something specifically about this period. So I was already sort of you know, putting these away in a file for later. Um, and then somehow, you know, at some, some event, Josh and I were talking and he was telling me that he was putting together this volume. And so like, as he described, I said, oh, you know, I've also, I've been like in my, in my citation manager of things that I'm going to, you know, go, go look at in the future. Um, I have these communal sources about, about, um, you know, the people bringing etrogim back and how they would be divided in the community. Um, and, and so um, I think I shared those sources with him because, you know, I wasn't working on it at the time and he, he was already kind of embarking on this project. Uh, and then several months later, I can't remember Josh exactly how, I don't remember if you had an idea for something that kind of related to my research or I had mentioned something about it. Anyways, he said, you know, I wonder if you would want to write something um, for this Etro book that has to do with um, pregnancy and birth. Um, And I I don't remember the exact order of whether I had encountered sources about this or you had told me that you saw these and thought that because I, I work on um, my current, you know, research is on Jewish midwives, that I would have some um, insight into this. Um, but that's, that's sort of how it um, came to, to my desk. And in general, this question could be for either of you. Was there a larger collaborative um project that, for the book, that is to say, so we, we, we discussed before that uh, Zev Elif and Jonathan Sarna worked on the essay together um, in, in that example, but more generally, were, were the essays written on their own and then just put together later as a book, or were there, there sessions, discussions of the different authors uh, before the book went, went to press? Nice question. Um, in this case, most of the authors worked somewhat independently of each other. Um, and we took it upon ourselves, uh, the task of editors, to weave um, in our introduction through lines of continuity. But the authors made that really easy for us because the themes really just um, blossom and, and come to the surface, uh, which made it um, a joy to try to tie together thematic elements. Yeah, I mean, I would just add just, I mean, I, I you know, conducted the the research for my very short piece in this, but, um, 
And then I, you know, submitted a draft to, um, to the editors. And then it was sort of a back and forth of, well, you know, seeing how it fits, you know, they have the, the kind of broader view of how it fits within the larger volume, which I didn't see. So um, there were sort of, you know, some pointers of things that might be more beneficial or less beneficial to include based on kind of how it was going to sit with the other contributions. But it was a very, a very easy back and forth. And, um, you know, they, they made the piece all the better. And if I can add to that, I hope, we hope that readers along the way will notice, we, we put a significant amount of effort into um, inserting footnotes along the way, inviting people to cross-reference other articles. Um, many of our authors already anticipated some of those connections. And we also used our bird's eye view as editors to say, for more on this, there's there's something else in this volume. So we tried to, we tried to draw in the paratextual material and the footnotes of the text, we tried to direct our authors into other um, other articles within or other con- contributions within the volume itself. Uh, I also wanted to point out, Jordan just, just noted that her piece is relatively short. And I just wanted to point out that that was by design. When we designed this volume, we were hoping to make it a somewhat eclectic mix of articles, entries, chapters of different lengths, with the reader in mind. It was quite deliberate that we wanted to bring a variety, a diverse array of lengths, of topics. Um, The form and function were really intended to be together. And we're glad that the authors rose to the challenge there. Yeah, I definitely saw that as well. And I think that even if your essay is a bit shorter, there's still a lot there to learn. So I think people uh, shouldn't take that um, as anything negative. Um, So if we'll dig into your um, chapter, Jordan, and then then next we'll get to Joshua's chapter as well. I want to make sure we get that in as well. But so you discussed the allure of the stem, the pitam as protection in childbirth. So we'd love to dig into that. And just as a start, what were the different sources you were looking at to better understand this history? Yeah. So um, before I even started doing the research for this particular piece, I had kind of heard from um, from a friend who knew that was interested in, you know, um, kind of folk medical practices um, that in Israel, you know, there's this um, link between pregnancy and etrogim. Um, It's sort of in the ether of thinking about pregnancy and etrogim. And I so I sort of wanted to trace that back. Um, and the, the, the earliest source, um, so, I mean, in, in the Talmud, um, we have um, sources that sort of link, you know, what you eat to um, the, the outcome of your offspring, right? If you, um, if you have um, eggs, you'll have a large eye child. If you have an etrog, you'll have a fragrant child. Um, but I wanted to see how that played out in the period that I studied. Um, and so I was working with the, um, the Tsena Urena, which is a, um, it's unclear exactly the, the, the first date of it, but um, late 16th, early 17th century. And it's an adaptation of the, of the Bible, of, of the, the Humash. Um, and it is a, it's the, um, it's in Giddish, and it was intended really for um, those who could not read Hebrew to um, to access the Bible. Um, but it also sort of, um, you know, contains um, ethical treatises and sort of exempla that are supposed to um, 
teach readers how to behave. Um, and so it uses the, the Bible more as a kind of springboard to discuss other topics. Um, so that was really the earliest, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what is this practice of the pitam of, um, of this woman, pregnant woman biting the pitam as some kind of recompense for Eve's ancestral sin of eating the apple. And that was the, the earliest source that I found. Um, and once I found that, I was, I was able to sort of trace it, um, you know, throughout um, later history to see how how it changed in different contexts um, and how it sort of migrated into a different practice with maybe different um, uh, prayers that are said with with this sort of act. And as as we said before, uh, the you know the etrog is apple of paradise. That you know, there's even that notion or that idea, or that tradition that. The, the fruit which Eve was eating was in fact an etrog. So there, there's something there certainly with, um, with, with that connection. So look, looking at, at, at the current um, practices around, um, so w- w- what's the current state of affairs? When did we see this practice potentially drop off or at least become less popular than it was at a certain period? Yeah, so I, I should just say that these sources um, don't necessarily tell us, I mean, they don't, this particular source, the Tenorena, doesn't necessarily tell us that this was done, um, right? It's sort of representing a practice that may or may not have occurred, but certainly there was an association um, uh, of the Etrog with this practice. Um, we see it sort of shift in the 19th century um, when things the custom, you know, there's still this kind of concern with the etrog, with making it into a kind of jelly or a sugary, um, uh, you know, some some kind of substance to ingest. Um, but no longer is the pitam uh, the center of this ritual, and that was really what I was concerned with. I was I was kind of fascinated with, um, you know, and still right, just in Jewish ritual context, right? This this kind of fixation on if the, the, the wholeness of the etrog is really contingent on, um, on this stem being intact. Um, and, and, and that sort of falls away from any kind of birth or pregnancy rituals that have to do with the etrog um, in the, the mid 19th century. And so just picking up on that, on that thread that, you, that you're saying that, you know, there is this notion within the halakhic literature of requiring the etrog to be whole in some ways. And so, so what, uh, what can you say about that tension between that, that halakhic potential requirement versus this more mystical or uh, folk practice? Well, so the, the halakhic requirement um, is exactly kind of comes to bear on the folk practice, right? Um, because the folk practice is supposedly, right, takes place after the holiday of Sukkot. Um, and the woman, the pregnant woman who, um, who conducts this ritual was supposed to say that, you know, she is, she is biting the pitam, but she's not quick to eat it, right? Um, and that she derives little benefit from the stem, um, just as she derived little benefit from the a- the apple, um, and so she's she's sort of um, saying, you know, I'm making this I'm making this etrog ritually unfit by biting the pitam, but I'm not eating it. Um, but it's only after it's fulfilled its halachic purpose during the holiday of Sukkot that she is able to do this folk practice. So they really are in harmony in that sense, right? She's not um, she's not you know, 
spoiling the etrog or making it ritually unfit during the holiday of Sukkot. It's deliberately after that holiday, after it served its purpose, um, that she conducts this ritual. Thank you for that clarification. So is there anything else that you want to say about your essay or about your research, which I haven't asked yet? Um, I just think that this book is, I'm so pleased with the way that it came out. It's so lovely and beautiful. Um, and it's given me a lot of um, food for thought for, for you know, new avenues of thinking about the etrog. I think that, you know, this is, this is such a wonderful collection and there's um, much more to be said about the way that this object um, can open up, you know, our historical senses to see connections and, um, you know, scientific developments that, that we haven't um, yet kind of dug out um, from the recesses of history. All right. Great stuff. Appreciate that. Um, so, so Joshua, go, going back to you. Um, so you're the editor, one of the three editors of this project. And you also wrote an essay in here called The Esseroger Risk, Reward and Ridicule. So some nice, beautiful alliteration, I should say, as well, we we're saying before we started the interview that my interviewees were Joshua, Jonathan and Jordan, three J's. And my middle name is Jeremy. So we're basically there. And so you've got also this beautiful alliteration, which I always appreciate. And so in this essay, you talk about the role of, of the seller of, of the etrog. So the esroger, the, the one who sells an, an etrog, also called an esrog in Ashkenazi pronunciation. So these people were people who sold uh, this type of fruit. But more than that, they were also, they weren't just doing it on their own. They were doing it as part of communal and, and, and uh, uh, you know, it was very speci- had a very specific role um, in the community. So we would love just to, for you to elaborate and tell us who was this person and, and what exactly were they doing? Um, as, as you've already started to tell the audience, the Esroger, um, as the name suggests, was a provisioner of Etrogim. Um, sometimes they were appointed by communal officials. At other times, they were intrepid individual importers. But I do think their communal role is, is a really interesting part of it. Um, there's a... There's a a somewhat famous or well-known collection of takanot, of ordinances, of the supra-communal organization of the Jews of Moravia uh, in the early modern period, which today forms the eastern half of the Czech lands. Uh, they're called the Shai Takanot. They're, they're 311 ordinances or statutes that governed. They were, in the words of one historian, nothing short of the constitution of the Jews of Moravia. And it's striking that the penultimate statute or ordinance or, or rule in this group is begins with the following words, on the matter of etrogim. Clearly something so important, the importing of etrogim was so important that it was subject to uh, careful, or at least attempted, careful communal oversight. And I think the figure of the Esroger is so interesting on multiple counts. One, because they actually show us the line of the labor of getting the etrog from point A to point B, uh, from farm to table, or at least from farm to synagogue in this case. But there are also fascinating test cases for the operations of communal authority, the limits uh, and extents of trust that are involved in constituting early modern communities. Um, And just as excitingly, they're sometimes figures of comedy. Um, one of the earliest surviving Purim spiels that we know about 
a comedic performance around the, the springtime Purim holiday is not about Purim at all, which is actually quite common for, um, for early Purim spiels. But it's instead a, a kind of duel of sorts, a matching of wits between two Estrogers, two Etrog merchants who come through a town and each one hurls insults at the other. Um, I, I imagine that the audience must have enjoyed this kind of body tete-a-tete between these two figures. And they must have seen in these comedic stage figures personalities that they sort of recognized. A joke only lands when when everybody's in on the joke. And I can only imagine that the audience there too was quite familiar with all of the tensions that surround this figure of the Esroger. So I thought he was such an interesting, and he, he is just about, to the best of my knowledge, always a he. Uh, I thought it was just so interesting to explore this figure who seems to be on the margins of community or seems to just be a once a year figure, but in the early modern communal landscape was somebody who was carefully regulated and salaried just like a shochet was, just like a cantor hazan was, and just like a number of other figures were as part of the early modern semi-welfare state of Jews. So as we talked about a number of times before, the book it has a lot of great images throughout. And so in your chapter, you've got four images. Were there any particular images within your chapter that stuck out or that you'd like to describe or tell our listeners about? Thank you. Um, what I really like about these images is I only found one of them. The other three were contributions from other scholars. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Jordan contributed one of the images, uh, the Pinkas of the resolutions of the Parnassim of the Ashkenazim of the Amsterdam Kiila. Jordan, is that correct? Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. That's uh, also what I sent to you, I think. All right. David Sklar, who's a contributor elsewhere in the volume, identified a privilege to sell etrogim granted by Emperor Charles VI to Elias Gold of Amsterdam from Vienna on July 14, 1715. My, my co-editor and colleague, Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, is the one who discovered the stamp seal of the etrog merchant, Moshe Mordechai Shor. I, I love all of these. Uh, three of them are, are fairly highly textual, um, whereas only one of them is artifactual. It should give us such a wonderful sense of the materiality of text and point to the lived experiences that revolve around these texts. The Pinkas of the Resolution of the Parnassim of the of the Amsterdam Kehillah tells us about how etrogim were to be distributed, the spaces in which they ought to be distributed, the res- responsibilities of the Esroger to bring them directly, the etrogim directly to the communal elders before showing them to anyone else. They tell us about the sealed crates that he brought to the community's Beit Kehillah, the distribution of, of etrogim, which is a theme that is taken up in the entry by Edward Fram and Deborah Kaplan, who explore how distribution shows us things about hierarchy, um, about gender, uh, about geography and matters like that. And so even the textual weaves together artifactual reference to artifacts and the material in the actual literature itself. Um, so we, we mentioned that there's this, um, uh, there are plays, there are different dramatizations of, of the Esserger, um, you know, comedic uh, representations. Do we have any, any idea how, how these characters themselves took this comedy? Did they take it to heart? Did they laugh at it? Or do we do not really have an idea about what they thought about it? That's a fun question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't know how they felt. 
But I do know that competition between Esrogers was not something that was fabricated out of whole cloth. Um, later in my chapter, I explore a case where two different fairly prominent members of the Prague Kihila in the early 18th century are at loggerheads over who gets the monopoly in, of importing etrogim, and each attempted to enlist the power of the state, going as high as to the offices of the Holy Roman Empire Habsburg monarchy um, in order to win their case. The case goes so far that one of the rivals is imprisoned, and the stock of etrogim are, are similarly impounded. Uh, even the etrogim are imprisoned for a little while. And so the, the material that emerges out of administrative sources that are in national archives, so they're not produced by Jews, but they're rather initiated by Jews bringing suits against each other in, in imperial courtly contexts, resonate with the uh, fictitious, fictitious experiences that we see in the, in the comedic and parodic as well. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I would love to be able to speak to them, but alas, it's, I don't think we can, but that, that, that's a great way to, to think about these things. So I think that, that that's a, a really great summary of your essay and the book as well. And I want to make sure that if there's anything else that, that you'd like to add, I would love to hear, because, uh, you know, we want, want to just get an idea of, of other things that we might not have included yet. Wow. I want it all. <laughs> I want to invite people to, to leaf through every page of this book, to enjoy it for the sensory experience that it is. If you're interested in the ancient world, there's material for you there. If you're interested in the modern world, there's material for you there. If you're interested in the state of Israel, religious socialism and Torah law, there's material for you there. If you're interested in Orthodox Judaism, there's material for you there. If you're interested in Reform Judaism, there's material for you there. Um, grab a copy. All right, that's great. So before I let you guys go, I'd love to hear what you're working on next. Yeah, so I'm um, trying to finish up this year, hopefully, um, my book manuscript on um, on Jewish midwives in the early modern period. Um mostly in Western Europe, but kind of crisscrossing um, more widely uh, the European continent. I'm looking forward to reading that book. Uh, <laughs> I too. am in the process of working on a book now that I've been working on for a couple of years that uh, reconstructs a plague epidemic, an epidemic outbreak that lasts for about five and a half months in the city of Prague in general and its Jewish ghetto more particularly, to try to learn both about the experience of epidemic, something that we probably, we definitely know all too well, but also to learn about the worlds that it disrupted, uh, what it changed, what came before and what came after, responses, resilience, compliance, resistance, as a, as a window into a robust Jewish community of the early modern period. All right, I guess I got a couple more interviews I got to schedule for the near future. <laughs> give us time. All right, I'll give you time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've been talking to Joshua Toplitsky, Jordan Katz, and Jonathan Sarna, editor of and contributors to Be Fruitful, published in 2022 by Meneged Publishing House. Happy reading, my friends.